Hello everyone, Ryan here. Uh, just a quick introduction on, on today's episode. We're interviewing Rohan Gray, as you'll hear in a moment, and uh, the discussion gets fairly technical. Um, and many of you certainly will be able to follow it, no problem. But but for, for those who may not be familiar with the sort of basic mechanics of, uh, you know, what we're discussing... Um, I just wanted to sort of lay out that, uh, you know, when we're talking about the Federal Reserve or the Fed, you know, that's the American Central Bank, um, and they have control over, you know, the the money supply. They can print money at will and, um, you know, use that in a variety of kind of technically sort of limited ways, but, you know, there's a lot of wiggle room in there. And so when you see, you know, the the Fed doing stuff like, you know, uh, we're going to inject $1.5 trillion of liquidity into the markets, you know, into the various commercial paper or, or uh, you know, municipal bond markets or, or the U.S. Treasury market, uh, which is, you know, U.S. debt, that is, that they call them treasuries, uh, uh, bonds that the government sells. That means they're printing money and they're buying various things. And then we have the Treasury Department, which is, you know, the sort of like fiscal uh, or, or, or budgetary apparatus of the United States government. And, the you know, these are the people who they, they collect the, the, the tax revenues in their, you know, their accounts. And then they, you know, send out all the various uh, money to government departments and, and so on and so forth. And so one of the uh, ideas that we're talking about here is this... Um, notion of minting a platinum coin worth, you know, say a trillion or two trillion dollars and um, using it to fund uh, emergency relief payments to American citizens or, or just like anybody, actually, not just citizens, anybody in the country. And so that would be to for the Treasury to sort of take back the ability to print money for its own benefit that it basically has given up to the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve, under this proposal, would still have all its existing powers, could still print money for its own devices, but the, the Treasury could also do that. And so just just to be sort of clear about what we're talking about, you know, um, it, it can be a little bit uh, tricky to sort of like grasp these distinctions. But, you know, we're talking about money printing uh, at the Fed, money printing at the Treasury, and then a lot of the discussion on, about like the sort of balance of power between the, the Treasury, which is a direct government department, and the Fed, which is a sort of semi-independent thing, which, you know, has a board of governors that is partly appointed by the president and partly appointed by the regional Federal Reserve Bank. So there's a lot of financier direct influence on the committee that, uh, uh, you know, sets Federal Reserve policy. And so this would be a proposal to sort of democratize the money printing power of uh, the United States. So that's just a quick kind of uh, baseline uh, to, to help you follow this, the discussion. Uh, may not be necessary, but just in case. So uh, and definitely feel free to, to send us any questions. You know, if we can't answer it, we could pass it along to somebody who does. Uh, because, you know, me and Alexi aren't aren't uh, exactly experts here either. So uh, without further ado, let's get started. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. 
pleased to welcome to the podcast uh, Rohan Gray, who is the uh, uh, the president of the Modern Money Network, the, an assistant professor at Willamette University. Uh, college or university um you can correct me there and uh author of the forthcoming book called digitizing the dollar which will be out in uh, early 2021 if society doesn't collapse so welcome to the to the show thank you very much for having me yeah and so we we wanted to have you on to talk about the uh the proposal it seems like uh kind of dead in the water at the moment but um uh representative rashida uh talib I'm probably mispronouncing that too, um, but but she had a proposal to address the coronavirus pandemic in a somewhat interesting way. So, can you kind of give us the 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 lowdown on that thing? Yeah, um, as a little caveat, uh, you know, this proposal is not intended to be a one size fits all approach. There's a lot of other things we need to do. We need a sort of mass mobilization of of, of workers, and we need to sort of think about what the the post crisis economy is going to look like, and and look at a, a whole range of ways of providing support and debt relief. But um, uh, the Congresswoman's proposal, called the Automatic Boost to Communities Act, the ABC Act. Um, which has gone uh, under the hashtag mint the coin uh, is a proposal to provide universal cash relief to every person uh, of an amount of $2,000 initially, plus another $1,000 per month uh, up to 12 months following the conclusion of the crisis. Um, and when we say every person, we mean every person that includes um, undocumented workers, that includes children, that includes people who are uh, here for any duration longer than three months. And the proposal would uh, do so via uh, primarily providing prepaid debit cards administered through the U.S. Treasury's Bureau of the Fiscal Service. Um, these cards would be mailed to everybody who has a mailing address on, on hand with any federal government agency, any state government agency, um, and would also be distributed through uh, distribution centers at post offices, banks, public schools, any other government office, uh, sort of as wide as possible. Uh, and then also have an emergency core of people who would go out to specifically at-risk populations, um, homeless people, people with disabilities, the elderly, to provide the cards directly to them and uh, perform a wellness check and assess whether they need a, uh, additional uh, supplementary support or any other forms of support. Uh, and uh, the proposal would be accompanied in the long run with um, sort of tax reform and other reforms to ensure that it doesn't enhance inequality and, and, and wealth um, inequality and would... Uh, be in the long term converted into a system of privacy respecting digital cash wallets, decentralized private digital cash wallets administered by the Treasury that would be a complement to uh, a system of universal uh, public Fed accounts for every citizen um, or and or postal banking accounts. And perhaps the, the part that sort of has captured a lot of people's attention in addition to the universality and the prepaid card distribution mechanism is that it would be funded through a money financed fiscal program, which is a term that was also used by um, Chairwoman, Chairwoman Waters of the House Financial Services Committee. Um, but the idea here would be to fund that with the Treasury using its existing legal authority under the Coinage Act, Section 5112K of the Coinage Act, to mint and issue platinum-proof coins of any denomination, uh, to mint and issue $2 trillion for the initial funding and then uh, any other additional funding thereafter. Uh, and the, the funds from those coins would be deposited in the Mint's account when the Mint uh, transferred those coins to the Fed. 
uh, the Fed would hold the coins as an asset. So it would have a corresponding asset for any reserve liabilities it created for the mint in the mint's account. And then the mint would transfer those funds to the treasury. The treasury would make them available. And the idea there being that this is, is using fiscal money for fiscal policy. This isn't a Fed supported program. This isn't helicopter money issued by the Fed. This isn't the sort of next round of monetary policy. This is a direct money financed fiscal program and would uh, emphasize to people that this isn't a question of sort of taxpayer money. This isn't a question of borrowing from our grandchildren or from China or for the bond markets. This is a moment when emergency cash relief is necessary and the Treasury has all the necessary monetary powers inherent to itself to do that. Yeah, that, um, it's interesting, you know, because uh, about six years ago, I wrote an article saying that we should do something like this on a kind of ongoing basis on uh, the Washington Monthly uh, called um, a free an article called Free Money for Everyone, basically that you set up these kind of accounts and that whenever there's a recession or something, you know, you everyone's got an account and you can basically, because what you're saying here is that the Fed will just print some money, um, you know, the, the government rather, will just create money out of nothing and then just deposit it in everyone's uh, account, you know, in, in, in case of, you know, recession or, or something like that. And I guess I kind of, I kind of go through this in the, in the article, but, you know, just to draw it out for listeners, I think one objection people would have is like, well, won't this create some inflation? Um, and so maybe can you like respond to that, uh, critique? Yeah, sure. And and as a first point out, you know, I won't speak for the congresswoman, but I, I'm, I'm actually sort of on the record as relatively critical of what they would call universal basic income programs in general. Um, but this is not a, intended to be a substitute for a, a full production economy or a job guarantee or, or full employment. This is emergency cash relief. This is a situation right. we're facing where people's incomes are cratering and people have ongoing expenses. They have to pay, you know, rent, uh, medical expenses, credit card debt, you know, basic living expenses. And so the aim here is to prevent the coronavirus crisis from becoming, uh, you know, exacerbated and, and doubled down by the larger secondary economic crisis that comes as a result of people basically losing their jobs and, and the, a large part of the economy uh, shutting down. Uh, so in that respect, this is quite in line with traditional Keynesian sort of stimulus on one hand, but also in line with sort of emergency financial relief for people who have financial debts, um, as well as sort of basic consumption needs. And, uh, you know, to the extent that we have real resource uh, constraints right now as a result of the crisis, you know, to the extent we're experiencing a supply side shock and a, and a production crisis and potential bottlenecks, um, our view is that those issues should be dealt with equitably through rationing and through sort of wartime kind of approach rather than a system that allocates people's ability to survive in this moment, whether or not they're poor, whether or not they have access to basic cash flows. So that's that's the first thing. Um, to go to your point directly about inflation, um, one thing that's really important to note here is that coin financing is no more inflationary than regular quote-unquote debt financing. And this is a point that MMT economists and others have been arguing for a very long time. Um, in fact, actually, John Maynard Keynes in the general theory uh, said, we can draw the line between debt and money at any point that is useful for us for the particular purpose in question. And so yeah. what we're really looking at here is something that would function similar to issuing treasury debt at zero interest um, in the sense that the, tre the Fed would end up holding an asset worth the full face value of that asset. 
the major difference here is, is twofold. One, it really helps clarify to the public that this is not borrowing from our grandchildren. You know, what we saw in 2009 was right after the stimulus, right after the, the sort of depths of the crisis was over, there was an immediate backlash. There was the Tea Party, and then there was this, uh, the Simpson-Bowles Deficit Reduction Commission. And even now we're starting to hear people say, you know, we're going to have to cut expenses in the future to, to make up for the spending now. You know, we, we, we can do this right now, but we're going to have to deal with it in the future. And so what we're trying to make very clear to people is that the limit on government spending, the limit on financial support is always inflation. It's not how you're going to pay for it. And the difference between quote-unquote debt financing and money financing is very limited in a moment like this. Um, and the, the major concern to, to think about here is whether we want a to perpetuate in this moment the idea that the only money that exists in the government comes from the Federal Reserve, that, the, that any form of money finance fiscal support, which even sort of more prominent Democrats, um, sort of senior Democrats are proposing right now, whether that has to be understood by the public in terms of the Fed providing support, the central bank giveth, the central bank taketh away, or whether we can say actually the Mint is the oldest monetary institution in the United States government, the Treasury financed its own spending for over a century before the Fed was ever created, um, it issued its own currency notes, it issued its own coins of whatever denomination it chose to to, to mint, um, the, the metal value sort of fluctuated, it was really more about the face value of the coins and their tax receivability than, than ever, particularly the unique metal content, and that in the long run, we need to understand that fiscal policy can do these kinds of things on its own terms. It doesn't need these kinds of central bank support. It doesn't need to engage in complicated debt buyback auction, all these kinds of rigmaroles, that the public's money, fiscal money, exists for fiscal policy whenever we need it. And the only real constraints are the same constraints we've always had, which is how are we going to get the votes and what are we going to spend the money on? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a, I mean, there, there are a lot of uh, kind of reformers who have said that, you know, independent central banks are are a kind of anti-democratic abomination. And, and um, you know, you, you look at what the Fed is doing right now, just pumping in literally trillions of dollars of liquidity into the financial markets, um, but not, you know, not doing the same thing for uh, you know, ordinary citizens, or at least not to anywhere close to the same degree, you know, relying on like, well, you know, if the banks collapse, that'll be bad for for people, um, you know, which is true, but it doesn't address the fact that like their existing policy instruments are just incredibly lopsided in the way that they, um, you know, kind of function. And it sounds to me like, like, what what you're saying is kind of in line with what a a lot of like reformers have suggested, which is that the federal reserve, like central banks generally should just be an ordinary government department. And that, you know, the, like insofar as you have monetary, you know, money printing authority, you know, sort of housed in one part of the, the state, that should just be an ordinary thing that you can do with it, whatever, you know, you feel is necessary. And you don't need to create this independent institution that is sort of outside or largely outside of the uh, realms of democratic accountability. Is, is that a kind of fair assessment, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. You know, I have been on the record being pretty critical of, you know, the way that Federal Reserve independence, central bank independence gets used as an ideological weapon on, on those lines. Um, 
But I think in this context, you know, and again, I certainly wouldn't want to speak for the Congresswoman entirely on that. Um, I, I think that we, we're offering something a little more modest in the sense that, um, as you noted, um, the Fed right now has, as, as, um, Chairman Powell said, you know, unlimited support that it's willing to provide. Uh, Neil Kashkari, the president of the Minneapolis Fed, said the other day that uh, on 60 Minutes that the Fed has uh, un- uh, infinite amount of cash to support the banking system. That was the exact term line that he used. Um, Chairman Powell also said to Congress, uh, think big fiscally. And if we look back to the last global financial crisis, um, Ben Bernanke, you know, testified to Congress, we stand willing to support Congress um, in whatever it needs to do. So in moments of crises like this, the, the Fed always sort of takes a backseat role and, and takes direction from Congress. Um, but uh, to, to the extent that the money power, so to speak, has always been shared between the Treasury and the Fed, even after the formation of the Fed, it wasn't something that the Treasury ever lost its power to create money. It lost its power to create currency, lost its power to create coins. If Congress decided to pass a new law establishing a digital currency administered by the Treasury like we're proposing, that would that would not be inconsistent with any other um, element of the, of the, the government setup. Um, but the way that we're thinking about this in particular here is that this is money-financed fiscal policy. And what we mean by that is when fiscal administrators need to do fiscal policy, they have their own money to do that. To the extent that we want monetary policy to be independent, and I'm happy to fight that fight, you know, another day for today, for right now, to the extent that we want monetary policy to be independent, this doesn't undermine that independence. If the Fed wants to pay interest on its reserves, if it wants to issue its own long-term liabilities and pay positive interest, it can do that. And if it decides that because the coins were issued, there isn't enough uh, government securities in the market, it can do exactly what it did in 2010 and ask the Treasury to uh, initiate a supplementary financing program to issue additional Treasury securities to drain the banking system from additional reserves. But the important thing to note in that moment is that if the Fed did that, it would be asking the Treasury to support its fiscal policy. It wouldn't be the Fed providing monetary support uh, to, to support its monetary policy. It wouldn't be asking the Fed to support, uh, it wouldn't be asking the Treasury to support, you know, um, uh, fiscal policy by, by borrowing from the Fed or anything like that, it would be very clear that the point of issuing bonds there was to support the Fed in its own interests. And in that respect, I think what this is really doing is preserving, to the extent it exists at all, a separation between monetary policy and fiscal policy and saying fiscal policy can do its own thing, monetary policy can do its own thing. They don't have to be in tension. But to go to your point, um, just just recently, the bill that has just come out of the Senate has uh, $400 billion roughly of treasury money that goes into creating special purpose vehicles to quote unquote capitalize these vehicles that the Fed is then planning on leveraging up to $4 trillion. And if you look at the bailout that the Senate has proposed and the President has proposed, it's a $6 trillion roughly price tag, of which $2 trillion is fiscal spending, and $4 trillion is the Fed leveraging these funds. Now, the Fed doesn't need to leverage these funds, but the Fed likes to have the veneer of, of the, the, the Treasury supporting this and sort of being the initial um, capital buffer for any losses that it takes on. So right now, it's not that we have to we have the, the Fed supporting fiscal policy. We actually have fiscal policy supporting the Fed. And that idea of independence there is sort of made a mockery of when it really only works one direction and the Fed can do whatever it wants. But the minute the Treasury doesn't even ask the Fed for support but wants to do something on its own grounds, um, suddenly people are, are sort of crying crying murder about uh, central bank independence. I think it's a bit hypocritical and it's a bit misguided. Yeah. 
it, it occurs to me to back up just for a moment, uh, if, if we would, because you, you keep saying quite rightly that you don't speak for the congresswoman. But uh, I think we neglected to mention why you might even, you know, say that someone might think that you would speak for the congresswoman, uh, because <laughs> you have indeed been involved in, in, in forming uh, this policy proposal that uh, Congresswoman Tlaib has has uh, put forth. So maybe m- mention that a little bit. And and again, I, I think we should move back and forth between uh, some of the, the economic and legal nitty gritty and the, the political purpose to which we're putting this, which is to make mint the coin, right? Um, and uh, easier for people politically to grasp and understand what is actually helping the people as against the moneyed interest. So, so maybe we can try to draw the fault lines and, and translate how the, the fiscal and monetary tools and the, the debates, the fault lines that are the debates amongst um, kind of scholars and, and policy wonks, how that maps onto actual political battles that the people might understand. Yeah, thanks. So yeah, I was very privileged to work with the Congresswoman on some other related legislation around digital currency, which which is my area of kind of expertise. Uh, and then when, when this crisis hit, you know, they, they were wanting to to beef up uh, the Boost Act that uh, Representative Philippe had, pro- had proposed earlier and to make it sort of relevant specifically in the context of emergency relief for the crisis. And I suggested that the minting the coin might be a useful way to finance this because it really does get us past a lot of these kind of debates around where are we going to get the money? Is this taxpayer money? You know, who's going to pay for this? How are we going to pay it back afterwards? Can we afford it? These are the, the traditional narratives that hamstring and, and, and cripple any attempt to help average people. And as I said before, when the Fed has to support, you know, from the top down in its way through the financial system, the words that you hear coming out of even the most conservative, you know, sort of Fed governors and, and chairman of the Fed is unlimited infinity, whatever it takes. These are the words you hear from the Fed. When you hear from Treasury, it's, well, you know, I don't know if we've got enough, or I don't know if we can afford this, or how are we going to pay it back? You know, these are, you know, does the average person deserve to make, you know, $15 an hour, you know, when they were only making $12 an hour beforehand? Oh, by the way, here's $25 billion to the, the, you know, um, uh, cruise liner industry, because God forbid they go under, you know? So this idea that, that we can have infinite money when it comes time to support the financial system, when it comes time to f- support corporations, uh, but we don't have infinite money when it comes time to support average people is, is to me, a, a, an injustice and a travesty. And it's a lie. It's a, frankly, it's a, f- it's a flat out lie. And, um, the, the, the point of Representative Philippe's proposal is by universal, we mean universal. You know, we mean nobody left behind. We are not talking about only lawful residents. We're not talking about only people with a bank account because 20 million people, 20% of the population, sorry, doesn't have a bank account. A lot of them do so because they don't trust banks, which means it's not just a matter of kind of banking the unbanked. And when we talk about even giving people a bank account, often what that means is surveillance, control, data mining, all of the things that, you know, the, the poor already experience when they get any other form of benefit. So the prepaid debit card system that we're proposing is not the best out there. I prefer digital cash wallets, you know, that were truly privacy respecting. You could get a little computer server the size of a of a credit card and put it under your mattress, literally, and uh, you could store your money there. And, and you know, the, the money is as anonymous as, as cash is today. Um, you know, your money doesn't snitch on you. Uh, it doesn't call the cops on you. Um, that, that's, a, to me, an incredibly important part of privacy and civil liberties and the move to digital currency right now, unless we fight back against that, will be a move to destroy that privacy and civil liberties. And this is an attempt to to tell people we need to start thinking about something as close to digital cash as we can. And that's what these prepaid cards are today. It's imperfect, but it's better than everything else out there. And we, we specifically did it to be universal. But to go to your point about the Fed, um, 
yeah, the, the idea of Fed independence is often used as this shield. And and even the people who are critis, critics of the, the Mint the Coin, you know, George Selgin, who's a libertarian, uh, you know, director of a monetary center at Cato Institute, um, has written a long post criticizing the coin. And one of the things he said is, well, uh, if the Fed chooses to raise interest rates in the future, it will have to pay interest on all the reserves that was created, you know, uh, against the coin in the banking system. And that will be a cost to the Fed. And normally the Fed does, when it creates reserves, it buys up treasury debt. So the treasury is paying it interest and then the Fed gets that interest and, you know, pays its expenses and then it sends all the profit back to the treasury. Um, but because it's in control, you know, it's sort of the left hand pays the right, the right hand pays its expenses and gives the change back to the left hand. But it puts the right hand in the driver's seat there. And, and, and the idea here, the implicit idea in his argument is that the treasury, uh, the Fed is entitled to demand that the treasury give it interest on a daily basis so that it can fund its operating expenses. And my point has been, this, this proposal to mint the coin doesn't stop the Fed from setting monetary policy. It doesn't even stop the Fed from selling securities if it wants to. Um, but what it does say is if the Fed thinks it's entitled to free money from the Treasury, it can ask. It can ask. It's not entitled to it. It has its own monetary powers. But if it wants to use its own monetary powers, it will show up on its balance sheet. It will show up as a loss. And it and might end up either having deferred income back to the Treasury or it might ultimately show up as a negative equity. It, but, you know, the Fed can create money. So it's not like a company once it's, you know, in negative equity, it's insolvent. The Fed can have negative equity forever. It's just that the Fed doesn't like having negative equity because it draws attention to itself. It draws attention to its money power. And it, it likes to have this system where the, where the Treasury is basically supporting it all the time, and you know, as I was mentioning before, with this four hundred billion capitalization, it, pr- it it steps in to to be the first shock absorber for any losses. But the Fed gets to make all the decisions. And what we're hearing right now is Fed officials saying, you know, we don't want to pick winners and losers. Well, the Fed is buying corporate debt. The Fed is buying all sorts of private risky assets. It's choosing who it gives swap lines to. Yeah. International, it's doing it. It's doing it. International <clears throat> currency swap so, lines. It's saying, you know, this country gets it. This country doesn't. This company gets it. This company doesn't. Where's my swap line? You know, where's my emergency credit facility? The Fed's not picking me as a winner. That's interesting. This, this is then doing more than simply addressing the emergency needs of the people, but, but it is doing that in a way much more universal and, and much more, uh, up to the needs of the people than anything the Senate bill is doing, for example. But it's also, in a way, trying to circumscribe more properly the respective powers of the Fed and and Treasury. Uh, And and if you understand powers as not simply what the capacity is in terms of of economics, but in terms of the norms and the political uses of those powers, then this is the kind of proposal that is seeking to shape those norms to, to, to be back where they should have been. Right? Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, as I said before, the Fed, the Treasury can always fund itself by issuing debt. It's done so for years. You know, the number has been going up and fiscal conservatives have been said, well, the house is about to collapse. You know, we can't do this forever and we keep doing it forever and we will keep doing it forever. But the sort of political cost of doing that is that we have to deal with this misunderstanding in the public that we're borrowing from our grandkids and China and that the bond markets could sort of shrug like Atlas and and sort of turn the whole table over if they're not comfortable with things. And so that's been the political compromise. Yes, you can fund your deficits, but you have to be seen as being profligate. You have to be seen as doing something that's unaffordable and you have to sort of beat yourself on the back at the end of that process. And we saw a whole primary season just now where, where 
Joe Biden's major criticism of Bernie Sanders was, how are you going to pay for everything? How are you going to pay for everything? We can't possibly afford Medicare for all. And he had this line, I wrote about it in a, in a Nation article that I just published called, the, uh, We Can Afford This Crisis, where it was a beautiful line because it was so telling. At the, the last d- debate with Bernie, he said, um, this is an international emergency. You know, nobody will be paying for this. this the, the money to pay for this will come from the Treasury he said. Not from the Fed, from the Treasury. And so the minute there's a real crisis that he thinks is real, you know, I think poverty and and, and health sickness and structural racism and all these other things are crises, but apparently they're not big enough crises for him. But the minute there's this crisis, suddenly, yeah, it's whatever it takes. We have unlimited money. You know, we'll do whatever we need to. So the only question I, the question I pose in that article is, why haven't we been doing this for climate? Why haven't we been doing this for, for healthcare? Why haven't we been doing this for the underfunding of basic infrastructure and poverty? It, the only reason is because some people think that one crisis is more important than another. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a distinction there though, right? That, uh, you know, if, if you're sitting on something that looks like maybe full employment um, uh, and it's not a crisis and you were to do something like uh, Medicare for all, uh, you would not have to pay for it in the sense that Joe Biden means, but it would be necessary to raise taxes like considerably. If you're talking about, you know, in- increasing like federal expenditures by, you know, some many trillions of dollars over 10 years, however much the cost is, right? Because at that point, then you, you know, you would be looking at a possible inflation um, and, you know, uh, other negative effects, right? So I think, I think the last point you got onto is, is the really crucial one. What you would have to do in that moment is assess the, assess the inflationary potential. And so I've heard people, you know, um, Stephanie Kelton and others have suggested the possibility that Medicare for all might actually be deflationary because what we'd be doing is massively increasing the efficiency of the healthcare system and putting more money in people's pockets to pay their debts and to, you know, engage in productive enterprise and not engage in extractive, you know, exploitative, unproductive, um, ways of living just to stay alive. Um, you know, maybe Maybe the costs of, you know, we can either pay for someone when they've got cancer or we can pay for preventative cure. You know, the other, the, the, the former might be um, better for GDP, but it might not be better for actual people's well-being. Um, but to the extent that we hit real resource capacity limits, um, one way to do that is raising taxes. But as, as I wrote with a, in an article in the Financial Times with my colleague Nathan Tankus and Scott Fulweiler, called an MMT response to inflation. Um, there are actually many ways to deal with inflation that moment. And a classic example here is the, the Fed knows that when they re- reach full employment, their preferred tool is to raise interest rates. And their theory is that doing so will increase the cost of credit and finance and cost of refinancing and will mean that you know there's less private investment. But the, the real debate, actually, that was the birth of what we not now know as Fed independence back in 1951 that, that led to the Treasury Fed Accord was not a debate uh, about whether Congress should be able to spend and the Fed should be able to tell them no, which is often how Fed independence is framed today. It was a debate between the Treasury and the Fed, the executive branch and the Fed, uh, the, the, the elected executive branch, because the, the president was saying, we want to keep interest rates low. Because low interest rates mean the cost of government debt servicing is low. We're not paying huge amounts of interest income to bondholders, which is basically, you know, free welfare for the rich. Um, and the, the, tre- the Fed was saying, well, we can't control inflation if you do that. And the Treasury said, I call BS on that. I call bullshit. You absolutely can control inflation. What you would need to do is direct credit controls. Credit, credit regulation. You would have to sort of tell banks to make less loans, to make less casino investments, to buy less, you know, mortgages, things like that. And that would have a demand reducing effect 
similar to, to raising taxes or cutting government spending. And we often think about government spending as the only source of demand, but there's a huge amount of private credit and private investment activity that we can regulate and we can modulate. And if someone said to me, hey, we're at full employment, um, we want to build another hospital, and then someone else said to me, hey, this bank is about to give a casino a $500 million loan. Well, they're, they're looking at the same construction workers. They're looking at the same bricks and mortar. They're looking at the same electrical wiring. And if I had to make a choice between the two of them, I'd say, okay, tell that bank to not make that loan and the government can make that, can build that hospital. And that was the fight that the Fed didn't want to have happen. They refused to even consider credit regulation as an alternative to interest rates, because interest rates was the market-friendly way of doing it. High interest rates means high yield for investors. Direct credit control sounded too much like socialism to them, and they were very scared of it. But uh, there's a great uh, researcher at the Bank of France named Eric Monet, who just wrote a book called Controlling Credit, that looks at the history of credit regulation as an alternative way of dealing with uh, private investment behavior that the Bank of France actually did for the whole post-war period uh, to a greater or lesser degree of success at different points. But the, the only reason that was replaced with the, the system we have today, where interest rates are the only tool that the Fed uses, really, although now they have macro potential regulation. The reason that was replaced was because the, the US and the UK had Thatcher and Reagan in the 80s, and they really kind of imposed this neoliberal interest rate above all one-size-fits-all monetary policy framework on the rest of the world. But even today, we have you know macroprudential regulation, we have capital controls, we have exchange rate management. There's all these tools that central bankers have to modulate private investment. And I think that's where I would start before I would start necessarily um, taking, uh, you know, cutting government spending. Of course, we should tax the rich and we should tax other things that we don't like because they're too damn rich. Um, but, you know, if we should do that anyway as an, as an end in itself. Yeah, as right? an end in itself. But, you know, if you're taxing a billionaire, um, that might not change the price of milk because most billionaires aren't spending billions a year on the price of milk. So if you're having a bottleneck in the milk industry, um, I could take quite a lot of money from Bill Gates before I'm going to change the price of milk. So we need to... We ne- As a billionaire might might say, what does a carton of milk cost? $10? Oh, exactly. That's right. That's right. There's always money in the banana stand. I mean, how much is a banana, right? Yeah. So so we, we can we can think about taxing the rich for a whole range of reasons, but we, we need to get beyond the numbers. We need to stop thinking, well, if we if we've spent a trillion dollars on Medicare, we need to raise a trillion dollars of taxes from the rich. I mean, maybe we need to raise $20 trillion of tax from the rich, but it might have very little impact on inflation dynamics. Um, and if we want to care about inflation, we need to do something more like the way that we did World War II planning, which is how we're talking about it now. You know, do we have enough masks? Do we have enough ventilators? Do we have enough toilet paper? Those are the questions we need to think about. Do we need to be investing and nationalizing industry? In France right now, um, luxury perfume companies have been repurposed to make uh, hand sanitizer. Ford just said that they're going to start making ventilators. So, you know, if we have a bottleneck in an industry that's causing prices to go up, let's talk about production. Dogfish Head Brewery, which is a great beer. They're doing hand sanitizers. They've stopped all beer production. There you are. There you are. Yeah. But but just let's for for the listeners uh, like myself who are less knowledgeable about the macroeconomics and and uh, and the history of these um, rivalries and different ways of of thinking of of how to use these tools, monetary and fiscal. Um, I want to come back to how to think politically. So mint the coin helps people understand how we don't have to figure out how to pay for that and how we could actually provide the resources that people need in this time of emergency right now. And as you said, that's different from how we talk about or how we want people to think about UBI, job guarantee, other things. Um, 
but so so but how do we connect the dots because again joe biden himself was saying in an emergency sure but not that has nothing he said to do with medicare for all generally right so so how do we connect the dots as as leftists um between this proposal for the emergency needs we have now and how to think about the policy tools and and help people understand politically what we can do on an ongoing basis yeah, I mean, that's why I think Representative Tlaib has been so courageous here, because there's a lot of people saying we'll spend whatever it takes. But you know what they're all saying? The government's going to issue debt and the Fed's going to support it. You know, the Fed's going to give a green light. It's going to sort of give its endorsement and, and you know, maybe help out and say we will allow it this one time. And what Representative Tlaib is saying is, no, we don't need to ask your permission. Um, my, my friend Raul Carrillo has a great story from, from Gandhi where they were having a fight with the sort of owners of salt mines in India. And, you know, people you know, use a lot of salt there for various reasons, and it was sort of a very valuable commodity. And Gandhi said, we don't need to keep fighting their, them for their salt, because once they've got their salt in their hand and they close their fist, it's very hard to open their fist. What we need to do is build a pathway to the sea, and we can get as much salt as we want. And we have to defend that that channel, because they're going to try and take it away from us. They want to be the only ones that can give us salt. But once we build that path and we defend that path, we have a vast, infinite sea of uh, available to us. And that is true empowerment. That's true emancipation. We need to tax the rich because they're too damn rich. But what we need to do in the long run is make it so that the rich are obsolete. We don't need their damn money. Money doesn't grow on rich people. We don't need their bloody um, support or thumbs up to whether whether it's you know bankers and investors or, or billionaires. And we need to take their, their their resources away from from them. But we don't need their money. And in in good times, we can certainly use the coin to fund a green new deal and Medicare for all and everything else. Any fiscal program can be funded by fiscal money. We need to think about the real resource implications of doing that. But it's really noticeable right now that everybody from George Selgin, the, the libertarian at Cato, through to Paul Krugman is saying, well, we don't need the coin right now. It's unnecessary. That's their only criticism. It's not that it would be more inflationary. They know better. They know that debt financing and money financing is the same in terms of its inflationary impact. Their argument is, do we really need to think about this right now? And what they know is that the minute this crisis is over, that whole debt framework, that whole borrowing framework, that whole master can I have right that back. whole master yeah. can I have a dollar framework where the yeah. Fed is the one who has the purse strings because the government, the public can't be trusted with its own money. All that is going to come raging back with a vengeance. And they're quite comfortable with that. And I think that is what pushing in this moment when the mask is off is so radically empowering to the average person. Yeah, and this uh gets to a uh a quibble that's, uh, that some people had, or I guess a question, you might say, you know, so as if we wind the tape back to 2011 and 2013, um, when the, uh, the, the coin, the mint the coin debate first happened, people may have forgotten the context, but this was, this was when uh, Republicans had taken the debt ceiling hostage. And the yeah. debt ceiling, if you remember, is this, it's just an arbitrary borrowing limit that says the the government is not legally allowed to borrow more than this amount of money. It's just a holdover from World War One, I, I believe, and uh, completely pointless in any sort of like direct economic sense. It's just a, a ridiculous anachronism. And so, uh, some blogger, as I as I recall, found this uh, little stipulation in the U.S. Code, which says that the Treasury can mint platinum coins of any denomination. And so the response was to say, oh, well, if the Republicans aren't going to raise the debt ceiling, then 
the, the Obama can just instruct the Treasury to mint a trillion dollar platinum coin, deposit it in its account at the Fed, and then it would have another trillion dollars worth of spending authority. Um, and in fact, Paul Krugman was in favor of this at the time. Uh, yeah. But now, you know, this is a different situation, right? And so the, uh, the, um, it's not like, you know, the, the, the debt ceiling crisis is happening now. You're just sort of like leveraging this existing kind of weird loophole in the law to say that the, 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 to allow the treasury to take back the, the ability to, to create money for, for fiscal uh, purposes. Right. And so what I'm, what I'm hearing from you that, that this is kind of a, I mean, I feel like if I were writing this legislation, like to act like to, to sort of pass it, you know, you wouldn't go through the platinum coin contrivance, but since it's there, I guess it kind of illustrates the issue like in a, in a, uh, concrete way. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's visible. It's tangible. It's concrete. It's existing law. It's not utopian. It's not speculative. It's not saying if we only did X, Y, Z, we could do it. It's saying this exists right now. We can use it. And, um, yeah, it was Carlos Mucha was the lawyer. He was actually on an MMT blog. It was Warren Mosler's blog at the first instance. Um, and, and I actually, you know, shameless plug, I wrote a law review article that's coming out. It's on SSRN now called Administering Money, um, Coinage, Debt Crises, and the Future of Fiscal Policy, where I go into detail all the legal arguments. And one of the points that I make is, you know, it, it, to the extent that it was used in the context of a debt ceiling then, a lot of the legal interesting legal issues were about whether the Treasury could do this under its existing authority, whether this was sort of outside the bounds of what the intent of that law was and things like that. And one of the arguments that I, I made at that point was, well, compared to the alternative, which is violating the Constitution uh, or blowing through the debt ceiling and sort of violating the separators of powers, this is by far a more consistent use of the, the, the Treasury's powers. And if you look at the history of the debt ceiling, the debt ceiling was created to actually give the Treasury more discretion in how it financed spending. Congress still determines what to spend. It still has absolute control over the purse strings. But once Congress says spend, the debt ceiling was basically an attempt to take a bunch of individualized spending authorities for different spending programs and give one general spending limit to say, it turns out if you spend a little bit less over here, you can put that money over here. You know, it, it makes it easier for you to make the decision as the executive. It was designed to actually give more autonomy to the treasury, not less. But the minute that number came into existence, it became a political football. And today that number is, is suspended until July 31st, 2021. But it comes back every few years and it's a political football and the, the counter on the side of Fox News is still there. Um, but what we're proposing is new legislation. So any of those legal issues about how to use it in the context of the debt ceiling are gone. They don't matter here. Congress has absolute plenary authority. If Congress says do it this way, it will be done this way. And you're right. You don't need the coin per se. Um, you could use, for example, US currency notes, the old greenbacks. There was a greenback party that emerged in the time of Lincoln. This was a real populist kind of political movement. And every, you know, generation, there's another populist kind of monetary movement that comes up in different forms. There was one during FDR. There was one during Lincoln. There was one during Andrew Jackson. There was even one during the formation of the, the Constitution. So there's a long history that uh, the sociologist uh, Jacob Feining has traced about sort of democratic monetary movements that I think this uh, fits squarely into. But that, that question of kind of is it necessary now? Well, I think, you know, it's notable. Again, we saw the, the Tea Party and we saw the Deficit uh, Reduction Commission come right after the crisis. And I'm very, we, what we're trying to do is preemptively inoculate everybody against that risk. And that's not sort of some irrelevant thing to the crisis. That's actually important about the crisis right now. And secondarily, to make the point, we've just spent 
what, six months, 12 months, arguing about how we're going to pay for Medicare for all. Like, I don't want to have that fight again. We can't afford to do that. That's what we can't afford. We can't afford to talk about what we can't afford for another two years. And this proposal has gotten into the minds of people. It's blowing a lot of people's minds. And hopefully after the first, you know, stage of outrage and disbelief and anger, they'll get to bargaining and then acceptance, and then we'll all be able to have a serious conversation. (laughs) But this is doing far more to empower average people to understand what's really going on here than any complicated bullshit about, you know, treasury debt borrowing and and Fed, you know, buying it up from primary dealers and holding it as indefinite assets and all these sort of fancy, too clever by half solutions that financial experts, you know, like me should be coming up with. This is a way of saying, look, I can explain this to an eight-year-old because sometimes it really just is that simple. Right, right. Yeah, well, let's do that, Ron. Let's do the eight-year-old pitch. Two trillion dollar coins are minted. Prepaid cards are given to everyone as much and as quickly as possible. Lives are saved, the economy is helped, and there's nothing bad that happens. Yeah, and at the the end, we commit to building digital cash that preserves everyone's privacy. It's money in your pocket, not money in an account held down in DC where some government person can tell you you can't use it for something that they don't like. Nice. Um, Yeah, so uh, maybe we can turn to the kind of politics at the moment. I mean, I'm pretty sure this was not included in the recent uh, Senate (laughs) uh, bailout package, but is there any uh, sort of broad interest in the House for this this proposal? So one of the things that came out of the existing proposal is that there's a one-off cash assistance to people. 1200 I believe, for parents, 500 for kids, and it's one-off. And if you don't have a bank account, you're looking at waiting four months till you even receive that. So if you're, if you were... Uh, and it's, isn't it, Ron, isn't it only citizens as Yeah, that's well? right. Citizens and lawful, maybe, maybe lawful residents, but I think only citizens. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to make a strong claim on that, but it's certainly not undocumented workers. It's certainly not um, the same amount for kids. It's certainly not, you know, universal by which we mean universal. I, th- I, I think you need a social security number. I don't think a tax ID number works. I believe you're right about that. Yes, correct. And so, you know, this, this is too small, too, um, too limited and too late. Is, is how I would describe it. And, um, you know, th- there was some talk in the House bill, which I think has since been dropped, of creating a digital currency system at the end of this. And that, that was a system of Fed accounts that would be administered by the Fed directly, by commercial banks as, as a pass-through, and through postal banks in, in areas where there weren't, you know, other services to be provided. And I support Fed accounts. I support postal banking. I'm on the record as being a strong supporter of both. But my view is, unless we have privacy respecting e-cash, unless we have digital cash as well, unless we have something that that we don't have to ask permission how to use, we are handing over the digital public monetary system to surveillance and control and censorship. And we can see it around the world right now. We can see it with tech companies who see data mining opportunities. We can see it with authoritarian governments who are using this crisis as an opportunity to monitor where people go using their mobile phone data. We're seeing it with sex workers being denied access to payment systems, Trump using international remittances as a, as a weapon to force Mexico to come to the table around negotiations over building the wall. Um, we can see it with Trump using control over the international payment system to impose sanctions on Iran, even though other members of that payment system, including people in countries in Europe, think that's that's an abuse of what was supposed to be a neutral platform. So we are in a moment right now where, in the same way as 30 years ago when we were building the internet, we have a set of decisions that the decisions we make today about how we build a digital government currency system will 
will reverberate for generations. And if we build it without privacy, we build it without freedom, we build it without some sort of decentralized cash, our children won't remember a world where they were able to make a payment without somebody monitoring that and, and giving them the thumbs up or thumbs down. And I think that's very dangerous. So how how would this work specifically? I mean, is it like some kind of a cryptocurrency type of thing, except just administered by the government? So, I mean, all all online financial services are, uh, have cryptographic security to some degree. You know, if you go onto a website that has HTTPS, that S stands for security, right? And right. The, the way that the, the credit card payments can be made online is because of cryptography. So the word crypto there is is sort of a bit of a misnomer, but, you know, my book is called Digitizing Money, the Battle for the uh, Digitizing the Dollar, the Battle of the Soul for the Soul of Public Money in the Age of Cryptocurrency, precisely because there is this, this idea that we need to think about something that is secure that, that we can own and control. And the way that I would talk about it is going back to the origin of writing six, 8,000 years ago, there were two forms, which the origin of writing is actually in tax records, tax receipts. There were two forms of money. There were tokens and there were accounts. And tokens were physical. You put them in your pocket. If you owned them, they were bearer instruments. Whoever owns them is the, is the bearer. You know, coins are the classic example. Paper money is a classic example. The other is accounts. That means some, some intermediary like a bookie, you know, keeps your name on a ledger and writes your stuff down on a ledger. And both of them have uses. Ledgers can be more efficient, more centralized, things like that. They can, they can provide, you know, offsetting against each other versus sort of wholesale payments, things like that. And, and tokens give you the freedom of the user. And th- those two systems have existed in parallel for a very long time. And right now there is a sort of uneasy tension balance between cash and, and digital accounts and, and, and bank accounts. And there is a war on cash going around. My colleague Brett Scott has written a lot on this very well. Um, that, uh, you know, data mining financial companies, telecom companies, um, and governments who are interested in surveillance are, are sort of conducting a PR campaign, making cash seem inefficient. And, and, you know, now they're going to say it's unsanitary and dangerous for public health. Um, you know, Modi demonetized a lot of, uh, currency in India in a big move. China has been moving at aggressive speed to make all payments digital. It's basically impossible to use cash there. Um, and the idea there is, you know, the more that we move people out of physical cash, the more that we can control and, and monitor what they're doing. And if you have a system where the, the cash instrument is issued as a token and the, the wallets speak to each other on a peer-to-peer basis, they use, you know, um, blind encryption, other things to, to ensure that, that they don't have to know each other, but it's, it's sort of the equivalent of handing over a, a unique token, um, then, then you can have a system of decentralized accounts. But the, the problem I don't think is the technology at this point. The problem is the political will. Because if you look at the, the move around the world right now for government digital currency, the term that's the term de jour is central bank digital currency. And why is that? Because central bankers have been the ones leading the charge. You know, you ask a central banker what they want to make, they're going to say central bank digital currency. You ask a hammer what they want to hammer, they're going to say a nail. And, and so when you ask them, what do we want? They say, well, we can digitize accounts. We can have better accounts. You know, it's sort of Henry Ford used to say, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, you know, instead of a car. And so their vision for digital currency is just bank accounts, but better. And again, I think it's really important to have public bank accounts, but we also need to think about what a, a genuine privacy cash holder instrument is. And and one little quick historical detour, I know, I know I'm talking a lot, but um, in, in the 13th, 14th century in England, uh, a, a historian named Ben Gaver has written a great article on this about the, the birth of the modern bank deposit. 
It emerged out of money transmitters who would sort of carry money on horses and carriages. And they would do it in two different ways. One would be you would give gold coins to them and they would put them in a chest with everybody else's gold coins and they'd give you a kind of slip saying, you know, I owe you a certain amount of gold coins on the other side. And that was the birth of the modern bank deposit. Just an IOU for money that I'll find somewhere else when you ask for it. Um, the other option was that you could put money in a sealed bag. And, you know, if your money had a little cross on it, that you should get that exact coin with the cross on it on the other side. And th- that system was not based in a contractual debt like bank deposits, an IOU. It was based in you own that property. It's, the, it's a principle of property law called bailment. And the modern analogy that I like to use, because I think it's a pretty clear one, is, you know, you drop your, your coat off at the dry cleaner. And unless you're in the middle of a Seinfeld episode, you're not going to see your dry cleaner wearing your coat out on the street. Um, you know, your, your coat belongs to you. It's your property, even as it's under their care. And the difference between a, a system where even when there are intermediaries, that they're looking after your property and have to look after your property with a duty of care versus a system where you give them your money and they give you an IOU and at some point they might give you cash back when you need it is this is a difference between a system where you control your own money and a system where some intermediary can control your economic activity. Yeah, so so it would be sort of similar to like Bitcoin in the way that it functioned in terms of peer to peer and and being anonymous, but it would it would be under the control of the, you know, the democratic government and not just the arbitrary blockchain technology that, uh, you know, like physically prevents uh, makes it harder and harder to produce additional Bitcoins. Right. Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of differences with Bitcoin. One is that Bitcoin has a, a single common ledger. It's the blockchain. Now, everybody can have a copy of that ledger, and who gets to make changes to it can be determined by some consensus algorithm. But there's still a single record of all transactions that were ever completed. Now, if you think about cash, there is no single ledger for cash. You know, if I go behind yeah. the school on a Friday afternoon and buy an ounce of weed or something, there's no record of that on some common ledger that someone can sort of de-encrypt and, and you know what Rohan there is now <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I have never done that I on the record this is going everyone's gonna know yeah, yeah. everyone's gonna know I hope it was good yeah, well, no uh, comment but, um, but, but no no but, but no the, the privacy issue I'm just very briefly does that how does that work with the the need for the government to know how much money people have to, to tax them you yeah know, in, in terms of maybe I'm missing some of some of how the privacy uh, works in our favor in terms of civil liberties but still permits uh, that not to be a problem no, that's a great point. And so the first thing is, I think we can look at the the existing legal arrangements and balance of power with respect to cash. There are laws saying you can't take more than $10,000 on a plane, right? There, there are laws about you know, $100 bills of the maximum size. And I, I wouldn't start by that nego- with that negotiating position because, you know, everything is going to be watered down against the interests of the of the national security and law enforcement anyway. Um, but you could imagine a system where there are some, some, some sort of quantitative caps, maybe $500, $1,000 or something on these cash wallets. Um, and to the extent that someone thinks you're doing something dodgy, you know, get a search warrant <laughs> and then we'll see about it. And and when you look at the debates over security online, um, even the best cryptography could be hacked with a, you know, supercomputer for a week, right? So we're not talking about a system where all of this stuff is completely private forever in the same way as I could use a, a thermal scanner and see what you're doing in your house today. But we're talking about the difference between sort of 
what what Edward Snowden pointed out, this sort of mass hoovering of all data all the time, every phone call, everything you've ever done, you know, SIG, SIG Intel kind of stuff where where you walk down the street and everybody's underwear is out on the front lawn and their house is made of glass and the front door is wide open versus something where, you know, you could break into every house, but you'd have to break through a couple of locks and there'd probably be an alarm system and all that kind of things. And, you know, both of them are not 100% secure, but you change the balance of power from sort of mass hoovering of data to get a bloody search warrant. And unless you have 25,000 supercomputers, it's probably going to be pretty hard to get everybody's. But to go to your exact point about sort of black markets and things, my view on this is, um, and, and, you know, this is my leftist view, is that, uh, that the, the rich are the ones who need the protection of the state for their wealth the most. You know, whether it's, whether it's Caribbean tax havens or, or Swiss bank accounts or, you know, Ted Turner owning half of bloody Montana, then, then the idea that you want to hold your wealth illegitimately, then Either you're, you're going to call the police at some point and ask them to stop someone from stealing it from you. Um, or my view would be, if we're really concerned about that, say, look, unless you declare above a certain amount, it's open season for thieves. Let them take it from you. <laughs> we're not going to protect it. You don't have any property rights on anything above a certain amount unless you declare it. And any corporation, you know, I think individuals have privacy rights. I don't think corporations have civil liberties. So any corporation should have to put all their money in a surveilled Wait, account. did you not hear that corporations are people? I heard yeah, that but, once. But, you know, that apparently true? it's okay to deny certain people kinds of civil liberties. So maybe they, we can start with them if they're people, you know. But my point is that, that this doesn't have to mean black money for everybody. Um, this means that we can have cash in people's pockets that is private. You know, your, your money doesn't snitch on you, but that, but that for the rich and powerful who are the most dependent on state support and state protection, then they can bloody ask and we'll give them enough protection as we think fit on, on terms that we see to be socially just. Um, but to go back to the point about Bitcoin, in addition to the fact that, that it has a common ledger, and I think there's there's pretty good criticism, I think, of how anonymous Bitcoin transactions actually are. It's quite possible to sort of trace them back. Um, the other thing is that Bitcoin's a private money. It's not a it's not a stable money, you know, compared yeah. to public money. And that's why you're seeing um companies like uh Tether and even Libra now. Libra was gonna create its own unit of account, a global Libra currency, and now it's sort of been beaten around by regulators so much, it's saying, maybe what we're going to do is just issue a kind of mobile money in every country that's going to be denominated in that country's unit of account. So what you're seeing with with this new wave of kind of big crypto companies like Tether and Libra is uh, a move to what they call stable coins, where they're using private payments technology, like mobile money in sub-Saharan Africa and places like this, but based on a public money foundation. So they get all the benefits of the stability of public money with all the technology benefits of private uh, currency technology. That's the kind of new uh, wave. And, and my view on that is that's a bank. If you're a private payments intermediary backed by public money, you should be regulated like a bank. And so, you know, if you walk and talk like a bank, let's make you get a bank charter and be subject to all the kinds of regulations that come with that. Yeah. Yeah, it makes makes a lot of sense. And this, you know, I've been saying this for years with Bitcoin that the 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 problem is that you have no way of of controlling it. And so it seems to be like largely in the hands of criminals. And um you know, it's it's like like many libertarian utopias, you know, kind of the dark web uh uh they quickly ran into problems of like trust and uh enforcing rules <laughs> and it was like ah oh, we're trying to sell heroin and people keep ripping us off <laughs> like gee <laughs> yeah and, yeah 
and, and incredible. My, my, my colleague and my colleague Angela Waltz, law professor, she she's been looking a lot at sort of governance structures of these supposedly decentralized systems. And one of the things that she points out all the time is, you know, there's a series of people who control the the master Git account for Bitcoin, and they choose what new additions come in and don't. And that's right. They like to say it's all apolitical you power. You, you just you can't escape that that in anything that's collective in any way that involves more than one person, people are going to have power, and that, that's going to be exercised. And then there are, there are ways to mitigate that or or balance that out, but uh, you can't avoid that problem. Yeah, and you can have as much security as you want on your phone, but if the secret police come and take you in the middle of the night and put you in a jail, it doesn't do much for you. So you know, from my point of view, if you really want to have privacy and civil liberties and freedom, you need to take that fight to where it actually matters, which is public authority. But I kind of wanted to circle back to the UBI job guarantee uh, discussion. Did, did you have a, a question you wanted to ask before we do that? Or no, let's go with that. Sure. Can I do that? All right. So, so here and and this is again to to kind of move as our listeners are mostly leftists who uh, who see the ills of capitalism being part and parcel along with the rise of global fascism uh, for the harm that uh, we're, so many people are suffering day in and day out. Um, what, what do you think about how we should understand these uh, macroeconomic issues and these tools, fiscal and monetary, uh, in terms of the kind of uh, policy proposals on offer that hopefully a socialist left can, can get people on board with because they make so much sense and they can actually address our needs. So, uh, you know, our friend Jeff Spross has tried to thread the needle, as, as you probably are aware, between those who advocate for a, a universal basic income or a universal guaranteed income and uh, the job guarantee, which is part of the Green New Deal, and says that they complement each other quite well. Uh, how does what we've been talking about fit into kind of those those broader discussions about how the left should uh, put forth a, a vision that uh, that can move us forward? Yeah, I mean, I know this is a fraught minefield. I know when you brought it up, sort of Ryan grimaced. I'm sure he's been through this enough times. Um, uh, so I think the first thing is, I think a lot of people like to think that a lot of us job guarantee advocates sort of hate the poor and don't want to give people money and things. And I, I didn't sort of, I didn't spend all my time working with the, the congressman on this proposal because I hate the poor and don't want them to have money. So hopefully that will sort of at least uh, put to bed some of that concern. Um, but there's a couple of things. I think first of all, um, you know, the, the move, the, the civil rights era movement for, for, uh, you know, march on, on Washington for jobs and freedom put, put the job guarantee as the centerpiece, but they talked about a guaranteed annual income. And there were, there were sort of poverty law uh, activists and things uh, who, who talked about that as well. And the idea there was for, for an income for people who cannot, cannot or should not work. And, you know, I, I'm another legal regulator. I'm not going to say a situation where someone's, where, where if somebody said, you know, we think you can work and they said, I can't, that I would say, you know, screw you. You have to go hungry. We're going to force you into some gulag or something. No, of course not. But this is really about aspiration, and it's about macroeconomic structure from my point of view. And there's two things. One, um, and we wrote this in an article, my colleague Raul Carrillo and I, in a debate with Matthew Brunig um, in, in these Times magazine. It was One was making a case for and against a job guarantee, and the other was making a case for and against a, a UBI. And in, in the case against the UBI, the, the title of it, which we didn't choose, but I like a lot, is The Problem is Profits. And our view is that we're enough of leftists that we don't think that market-driven production is the right way to provide public goods. And, you know, I, I came from a background in education. Um, and from my point of view, that the, the idea of giving people cash and letting them go buy their education, that's the school voucher approach. That's the Bobby Jindal, Louisiana, right-wing libertarian approach to public education versus providing public school universally for free. Giving people a health savings account is the, is the right-wing market approach to healthcare rather than Medicare for all or even the NHS. 
Um, so the question of, of whether we want to provide public goods through, you know, a gift card to Disneyland or public parks is to me a question of how we provide public goods. Not that we want to deny people who don't work public goods, but that I don't think that the cash nexus and markets is a superior way to do that. And, and funnily enough, about three or four months ago, Nathan Tankers, my colleague and I got into this big fight online on Twitter, as we always do, uh, about single payer food. And people said, oh my God, you're fucking crazy. You know, haven't you heard of the, you know, haven't you heard of the Soviet Union, you know, bread lines, blah, blah, blah. And now we're at a point when, uh, when grocery store clerks are being nationalized around the world to make sure that people get food. So suddenly single payer food isn't looking so crazy to people. And if you actually look at the sort of historical record in Britain when they were providing, you know, free lunches and restaurants, you know, nutrition went up a huge amount. And, and there's a, there's a line to be drawn there about understanding that we exist in a society right now where so many benefits are provided by cash. But to, to say as a long-term vision, if we can't imagine a world beyond give everyone money and let the market provide, I don't think we're doing a good enough job as leftists. And, and I see a world now where Amazon and Walmart and Monsanto, they're our providers, right? You know, we could be, they're, they're the ones providing our basic living standards. And I want a world where we provide these things publicly, universally for free. And so I'm a big fan of universal basic services. Everyone has a right to live. Everyone has a right to housing, food, shelter, communications, art, culture, you know, transportation, all those things for free. Uh, it's not a matter of denying people who don't work. But because we're enough of leftists, we're enough of Marxists that we care about the production side of the economy, it matters whether everybody stays home and does nothing, or we have something, you know, as someone once said, from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. And to the extent that we want a system that says to every child that's at the age of five, when you grow up, there's a way for you to contribute. There's a way for you to be part of society. That is the vision of the job guarantee, because unless we guarantee that, it will not happen. And unless we actually build institutions to to find, tap people's potential and bring them in, they will be excluded. There's a great book called No Right to Be Idle about the invention of the legal category of disability in the 19th century. And until that category existed, it was just generally accepted that people of all capacities would contribute in their communities. Once that, that category came out, came to be, it was an excuse for employers to deny people with disabilities the ability to participate in the workforce because they wanted to hire better people. Oh, you're disabled. You should just go on on the welfare system. Let the real able-bodied people work. And you see actually this a lot on, on, on some people on the left. They say some people just shouldn't be working. They're not productive people. You know, if we, if, if we have productive needs, hire people according to regular skills and regular needs. And my view is if we start from that position, that we ask everybody, are you a valuable contributing member of society? Yes or no. The fact that there's even a no in that question is is answering the question already. Someone is going to be answering. But we that. we can all agree that like Chris Kaliza should not be working, right? Like we agree <laughs> oh, with look, that. Yeah. yeah. He, so so there are some people. There are some people that shouldn't be working. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I'm, I'm a prison I think, abolitionist. I think we can I'm, we could we could create a list. Yeah. You might say of these people. Yeah, I, I'm a prison but, abolitionist, no, but, but just, I'm not, not going to be advocating for uh, you know Harvey Weinstein to be getting out of prison anytime soon. You know, there's a lot of people I want to get out of prison first. Um, and certainly, you know, I'd I'd love for Chris Kaliza to be offered a whole range of socially useful jobs which is not what I would describe his current line of employment. <laughs> so, you know, part of the point here is to envisage a world where we are not reliant on private market capitalists to to do production. And I don't think Wait, that socializing... This, this is really market. funny. This is really interesting to me, Ron, because you have on the one hand this this debate, the UBI job guarantee debate, where you say you're, you're being, you know, the, the leftists, and I, I really appreciate that because I, I do favor uh, all those publicly provided free 
goods and services that you're talking about in a kind of centralized government run approach to things. But then on the other hand, you have like the D- Doug Henwood critique and the critiques of MMT that, that say like you're forgetting about class struggle when you talk about like kind of uh, ignoring the battle between the, the, the rich and, and the working class. And, and then th- that kind of is elided in the, in the way that you're approaching these policy questions. So, so it's almost like you, you, you have totally different orientations to these battles. Uh, and so I'm kind of, I'm kind of interested in that. Yeah. So we, actually wrote a piece in monthly review you know that that classic anti-leftist magazine um you know uh, called a, an mmt response to doug henwood um and one of the points we made in this after he wrote his long piece against mmt in, in jacobin uh is that in his view we can't get health care for all unless we um unless we uh, uh first uh, you know put every rich person's head on a spike and my view of this is we yeah put them all on a spike sure i mean i'm down for that but but to go back to that Gandhi example, the real emancipation is to build that line to the sea and get that infinite salt and make them obsolete. And in a, you know, I, I sometimes use this example of kind of breaking, uh, getting over your breakup with capital, because you know when when you when you when when your ex has broken up with you and you're feeling really bitter about it, you know she's your source of, or they are your source of misery. You know they're the reason you're unhappy. When you've really moved on you realize that you were your source of misery and that the thing stopping you from moving on was that you couldn't get over being hung up on them and they you saw them as your source of happiness and salvation. And so uh, there is obviously a power struggle. And the fact that, you know, we are all leftists, we all support Bernie, we all support social movements, we all support DSA, you know, th- we are not here to try and deny class struggle. We have a different theory of how to win class struggle and that theory is to stop positioning the rich as the source of our salvation. You know, they're holding a golden coin in their hand that if only we can pry their hand open, we can get that sweet, sweet gold and everything will be great. No, we don't need them. You know, we need to get them out of the way. We need we need to get them out of the way to building a society in which they just don't exist yeah. anymore. And so then you would disagree with so like Alex Gorovich has a problem with with universal basic income because he thinks that he thinks that also ignores the class struggle that's necessary to kind of bring the consciousness that would accept the UBI right so so like this is an interesting way of, of thinking about how to get to where we want to be um, and, and then then of course there's there's you know Jeff Spross who says why not both what well, you can have the UBI and the job guarantee and that make them might make the most sense to people if you combine yeah it. so I think on, on the Jeff Spross line I like Jeff a lot you know he's a friend I I, I think that. Certainly, administratively, I wouldn't be denying people the guaranteed annual income on the basis of some sort of, you know, administrative determination that they, they should be working and haven't. But I think, again, this is about social aspiration. Do we tell, do we tell five-year-olds, work sucks, no one needs to work, just get your check, you'll be free, you know, you can go surfing, you can become a volunteer, or do we tell five-year-olds, what do you want to be when you grow up? How do you want to contribute to society when you grow up? There's a place for you to do that, and we're going to support you to do that. And I think that the kind of idea that, you know, if only I had some cash, I'd be free to self-actualize is missing the relationship between participation in production and, and, and realization of one's full potential. And you only need to look at the power that volunteers have in volunteer agencies. You know, I run a nonprofit. We all don't get paid. We're all volunteers. But you don't get control over the means of production when you're a volunteer. You know, I like to use the example of um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You know, you can get as much of a UBI as you want. At the start of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Charlie and all of his grandparents, they're all poor, right? They're living on cabbage water. Um, they're not starving. They've got food. But how? How? when was Charlie going to become a chocolatier? Only after Willy Wonka opened the gates to the factory. 
right? Only after they were allowed to become a chocolatier. And that was a job. That wasn't an income. That wasn't food. That was access to the means of production. And to, to the Alex Gorovich line, you know, uh, I always think of that idea. People say it's easy to imagine the end of the world and the end of capitalism. If somebody says, what's freedom? And you said money. That's a pretty impoverished vision in my point of view. You know, freedom is the public parks and the schools and the time with my family and the free culture that I get to participate in, all those kinds of things. Um, and people who are actually the forefront developers of what we now call universal basic income, people like C.H. Douglas, who was a founder of the social credit movement in the 30s. You know, there, there was a social credit party in Canada. This was a, a whole political movement. He was quite explicit that he said, you know, my vision of social credit is it will create an aristocracy of producers and a democracy of consumers. Now, that's half right, <laughs> you know, and you can guess which half. I, I want a democracy of both, and there is no way to go from a democracy of producers, a democracy of consumers to a democracy of producers unless you get back into the production side. And what I hear from some people is, well, we'll just socialize the stock market. Well, great. You know, Amazon, Amazon still so, so, sovereign wealth fund. Yeah, right? yeah Amazon's about? still relentlessly squeezing every dollar of profit out of their system. They're still not letting their employees take so, so, take. So you're breaks. saying that the job guarantee can actually help leftist socialists gain the ability to control the means of production um, more than we can in any other way. Like it seems. Yeah, like that's, that's right. It, de offer. it and, de and decenters the cash. Nexus. Usually, what I hear, this is interesting. It decenters the cash nexus from the production system, and you know, if you go back to Marx, he had a critique in in his critique of the Goethe program. He talks about the transition to communism. This is where the like from each according to their ability line comes from. He talks about the the transition to to communism going through a lower phase, a lower phase of communism, and that's a phase where capitalist money is replaced with labor certificates where every new dollar comes through through the performance of labor. And he said, look, that's still bourgeoisie. It's still a form of liberal right because it's not from each according to their ability to each according to their need. It's from each according to their ability to each according to their ability. But he said that's a necessary transitional step given that we exist in a capitalist economy, given that we exist in the system that we do. To get to the point where we give everyone what we need, we need to go through a system where we at least – reward labor as the primary sort of source of, of value in the economy. Not because necessarily we agree to a sort of uh, epistemological labor theory of value. I think, you know, natural resources and, and, and accumulated social capital can be, can be a source of value too, but because we want the monetary system to be one in which new money is created through, through, through its relationship to labor and that that provides a, a, an empowerment to the working class. And there are MMT books. I've written a chapter in one called, um, uh, uh, modern money and the theory and the job guarantee realizing Keynes's labor standard. And that, that's the whole idea there is that we are tying the value of money to the labor that re is required to do so in a way that radically empowers the working class and, and positions them as the vanguard of, of social production. The, this makes a I don't know it's kind of kind of an uh, interesting like divergence I guess from from what you might call a traditional understanding of like the the point of you know the the social democratic welfare state you know and and the demands of uh, you know unions and social democratic parties over the years which is to you know in one sense. Uh, take control over the the methods of production and the workshops and so on but also to just reduce the amount of work right i mean it uh you know the 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 point of something like a uh you know a child allowance is to say well children don't have to work you know as they once did in the in the 19th century um 
And, you know, I mean, I'm sure disabled people are discriminated against in the labor market, but sh- but there are definitely people who are so disabled they can't work at all, uh, no matter what the condition. And so, you know, surely some kind of like disability allowance would be uh, necessary or and appropriate in, in those sort of circumstances. Similarly for retired people, you know, the idea that you turn 65 and you, you know, you've, you've put your time in and now you can sort of relax in your, in your golden years and kind of clear the decks for the next generation of people who can, you know, go through that, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, participation in the, in the, in the economy and production and so on. So isn't, you know, I mean, isn't it a place like, like I remember reading uh what's his name Minsky's book on this it's a this property uh, uh sorry uh, poverty jobs not welfare and I I basically disagree with that approach in terms of you know like setting up I feel like my ideal situation would be yeah jobs are are good or they should be good and they probably could be better and like the people should have control over that situation but on the other hand you know we can't just allow labor income to be the the only way that people can get money right because like there there are these categories of people who do need to be helped oh look i completely agree with 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 the idea that everybody should have an income and that and you know the the reason that even the civil rights movement talked about a a job guarantee first but a guaranteed income for everybody you can not and should not work and so i support all of the programs you just mentioned and i also support a massive reduction in working hours and and i actually you know exactly someone who's been a long-term critic of the job guarantee mike uh mike consul um had a piece that i actually agreed with thoroughly a a few years back where he said i'm going to stop really kind of pushing for the ubi although you know whether he still whether he still does that it's a separate question, but he said, I'm going to stop pushing for the UBI and start talking about a reduction in, in workouts. And he said, towards a Garfield left. And I love that because, because <laughs> yeah, I think there's a huge amount of time in life right now where the only reason people are working is because they feel they need to, to you know, to, to work for capitalists to stay alive. So one of the things that I think a job guarantee allows us to talk about is what is socially necessary labor? What is socially needed labor? And then secondly, what is socially valuable labor? If people want to work, Give them an opportunity to do so. Don't deny them by saying there's not enough, there's nothing you could do that's helpful. Um, but once we're actually starting, t- starting to talk about, you know, a Green New Deal and public goods provisioning, then we can start to talk about maybe we've been working way too damn much. Maybe we should have a 30-hour work week. Right. You know, maybe we, every time we need to expand, you know, benefits, one way to do that is have more days of paid time off every year so people have more control over their work. And I support yeah. 100% all of those things. Yeah, I mean, I mean, John, John Maynard Keynes, right, in, in yeah. his Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren in 1930, he, he was right that like a hundred years later, which is, it's about 90 years later now, right? Uh, we would have the capital accumulation, the technological advancements that he thought we would have. Um, but he thought that come, that coming with that would be a 15 hour work week, yeah. right? That, that we would shift our ideology to realize this abundance would mean that everyone could have leisure and that we would, yeah. we would spread the wealth around if, if to quote Joe the plumber, right? Uh, this is what Keynes thought. And he was wrong because the ideology yeah, is, is, is uh, for prof- profit maximization, right? But, but, like, wouldn't that make sense then if you had the job guarantee, but that like a market socialist would say, if you want to work more, make more money, fine, you can make more money, but everyone should have a certain baseline and perhaps no one should have to work, even if they're capable, more than a certain number of hours. But if you want to, you know, 
go eat your heart out and make some more money, uh, make yourself useful, that's fine. So there, there could be a balance to making sure everyone has a certain baseline of comfort and leisure yeah. and, and allowing for some to prosper by working as hard as they like. Yeah, I think there's two elements where the job guarantee adds something to, in that particular sense. One is um, it, it doesn't matter how much income you have. If the gates to the chocolate factory are locked, you're not going to become a chocolatier. So a job guarantee is saying we demand access to the means of production. We're not going to wait and and then ask if somebody who owns the factory wants to give us a job. Maybe I want to you know volunteer and maybe they'll decide I'm important enough to give me a permanent job. No, I have a right to participate in the industrial armies of the world or the cultural armies or the care armies or whatever else. You know, don't use military metaphors. You know, just the care society that we want to be part of. Um, but the second point, and I think this is the crucial part that I think the job guarantee advocates really harp on is, you know, if we want chocolate for everybody, that factory does have to be running. So we, 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 the, the, the concept of socially necessary labor is a way to get rid of all the socially unnecessary labor, but it's also a way to focus on, on the socially necessary labor and say, if we're going to do this stuff, it should be equitably distributed. And my colleague, Nathan, Nathan Tankus likes to talk about this. He, he kind of grew up in the Occupy movement is that you see it a lot of anarchist circles, this sort of no rules or, or very little. I mean, I don't want to sort of caricaturize anarchists too much. I have a lot of respect for anarchists, but the, the idea of kind of, it's all voluntary. What that often ends up meaning is that certain people pick up the slack. Some people don't do the work. Other people end up doing the work. It's often the global south. Usually, usually the women. Yeah, usually the women. women usually usually people slack. in the global south, right? So, so people in the United States going, it's time for universal basic income. I guarantee you, it's not going to be coming to Bangladesh anytime damn soon, but they're going to continue to enjoy Nike and Apple products for quite a while after they get that basic income. So my point of view is at the point at which everybody in, in the, in the planet has a chance to work, at the point at which we have decided that we want to cut down on unnecessary production, then, then let's talk about that together. But I am not going to give first world white men like me a, a free money to do nothing while that money <laughs> is being used to buy goods and services made on the backs of labor done by somebody else. If I want to, pro- if I want to consume in society and I have the ability to consume, uh, to produce, I have a responsibility to, to contribute my labor equitably along with everybody else. And, and to that, that full prosperity, that maximum prosperity for everybody requires a theory of production. And usually when you scratch the surface of a lot of these UBI visions, it's, it's markets and a sovereign wealth fund. Right? It's Amazon, but socialize the stocks. And I don't think that socializing the stock market is going to cause Amazon to suddenly becoming a good place to work or a place that's friendly to workers. Norway has had a social wealth fund for years. I've been to Norway. It's a nice place. But they're still capitalists. They still have people, you know, working to make a living and people get fired and they don't feel like they have a right to participate and all these kinds of things. The the sovereign wealth fund is built on blood, you know, oil money. The Alaskan permanent fund is built on oil money. You know, the Saudi Arabian sovereign wealth fund is built on oil money. But but again, you're not arguing against the sovereign wealth fund. You're just saying that's not sufficient. Well, right? I don't think I. Th- are you arguing? I, 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 are are, you, are anti- you indeed arguing against? I'm it? putting anti-sovereign wealth fund because the way that a sovereign wealth fund works is it collects profits and it redistributes money. Money is the one thing we don't need to be redistributing. I'm all for nationalization and public ownership. To be clear, I don't think the way to do that is to own the stock market because what you do and what you see. Wait, 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 yeah. wait. So, so in, instead of redistributing the profits, the profits should keep going to the highly concentrated people that have them now. No, you, you turn it into public ownership or make it a non-profit company. 
profit yeah. profit right. extraction. Right, but you can pursue those things simultaneously. Well, can you no, pursue those things simultaneously? That's my claim. I don't think that's true. Because the minute that people's got this universal basic income or a capital grant or something, and that that... Oh, you think they won't have the interest in doing the other political things necessary. I see. Uh, is, is what's Where's the movement in Norway right now for, you know, where's the movement in Alaska to, to stop, you know, drilling oil? Is it, isn't this a form of accelerationism, though? Isn't this logic? I mean, well, un, under isn't that it? logic, well, then let's all just is, be is, 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 isn't this logic to say we shouldn't pursue certain things that would help people better than the baseline we're at now because to not have those better things we could get something better isn't that the same logic? no 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 because the whole the whole point of mmt and the whole point of minting the coin to sort of do a throwback to where we started with this is we don't need the money from the sovereign wealth fund we don't need it we, if we want to fund income for everybody you know we can provide that directly i just literally proposed a bill to do exactly that where's the sovereign wealth fund doesn't exist if I wanted to take over Amazon, which I just proposed, you know, in my in my nation article, we just nationalize the damn thing. Right. But we don't nationalize it sure. and then say, by the way, next month your quarterly earnings need to be even higher so that we can distribute dividends to everybody. Well, no, but but don't you pursue on all fronts and see whichever political battle you win, you you, you take that victory. I mean, that's I guess that's what on the left we have this problem where we're fighting each other uh, over different pathways, and some of which we could argue over are better than others. But if we defeat each other before we even get any of the victories, then we get none of those results. So I I have no opposition to nationalization. I have an opposition to profit seeking market behavior. And I feel like that's actually a pretty consistent leftist position. And, you know, that's why I said that that article in these times, the heading that I love, the problem is profits. The problem is profits. If you had a social wealth fund and the social wealth fund said, we're going to own these industries, they are not going to be required to generate profit, but they're going to be required to generate social return. Then what you've talked about is just turning it into public schools or public ownership. Fine. I have no problem with that. The, the social wealth fund model is it will work underneath the, the, the headquarters layer, underneath the penthouse suite. Everything underneath will look like a private capitalist firm. Maybe there'll be some ethical ownership, you know, guidelines coming from upstairs, but the whole thing will be indistinguishable from another market participant, except for the fact that the, all the stock pro profits will go into this social wealth fund. To me, that's just, that's just capitalism with a different boss. I don't want state capitalism and I don't think it's the same as socialism. And I, I understand your point that I, I'm not here trying to say, you know, God forbid we give poor people money. No, I'm saying that I don't think that putting Amazon's profits as the source of our salvation, that's the same as saying the money comes from the billionaires. Right. But I, I guess, I guess part that makes sense to me, but part of the point I'm making is like, as we try to, we're, we're so far from either social democracy or market socialism or democratic socialism that like anything that advances us past where we are is a, is a good thing. And it's kind of a tricky thing to, to have the battles uh, at this stage where like, if you knew that you couldn't get nationalizing any of these companies and any of these industries, um, the sovereign wealth fund would still, in terms of redistribution, it wouldn't affect the means of production, but it would still be better for putting money in people's pockets that aren't getting it now. And, and, and your argument is well taken that that doesn't mean uh, we can't look for something that's that's more socialistic than that. But like, yeah. it's a tricky thing at this stage to kind of talk about policy and politics when we're so far from anything that good. Right? So I think there's a couple of things there. One is I don't think the sovereign wealth fund model is that abstract and esoteric. I think it's it's out there right now. You know, there are people who 
were saying that Norway is the model for social Alaska, yeah, right? Alaska yeah. and Norway are the model for socialism. I mean, you had Andrew Yang literally running on a UBI this presidential election. Um, so, and, and kind of, you know, life comes at you fast, you know? Like, I'm not saying Andrew Yang is the leftist version. I, I understand that. Right, that's but different. the UBI would be better than what we have now if we had what we have now plus the UBI. I mean, you're literally helping Rashida Tlaib propose something that's about the emergency, but it's literally about putting money in people's hands. So it's not like that divorced. Well, but, but, but Andrew Yang, Andrew Yang stood not- up there and said, um, we don't need a job guarantee because robots are going to do all the work. And he said that, you know, if we give everyone cash, then they'll have their right. basic needs met. And, and I guarantee so you he's the Silicon wrong. Valley he's loved wrong, him But like it. policy proposals don't get enacted like wholesale in terms of the vision of the one person. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. They, they get piecemealed, right? Right. So, so this is where, so life comes at you fast. What seems like an abstract debate becomes real, real, real quick, which means, you know, I, I actually, a friend of mine, Sean Sebastian, who was one of the co-directors of Fed Up, now he works with People's Action, you know, he came to one of the early MMT conferences and, and, um, was on a panel about organizers. And then the next year he was on another panel about, you know, building social movement power. And he said, when I first came, I thought you guys were all talking about all these abstract issues that were so far removed from everything. 12 months later, holy shit, it's, it's in the front of everyone's faces. So what seems like it's a nuanced issue kind of years later, it actually gets pretty quick real soon. The second point on that is um, I, my dad worked in the federal government in Australia. There was a great line that he, he that really imprinted on me, which is there's never time to do it right, but there's always time to do it again. And I, I think that, you know, we need to be really careful because small differences, if you accelerate 10,000 kilometers, you know, you, if your car is a tiny bit off the road and you fall asleep on a road that's sort of 5,000 miles of straight road and you wake up six hours later, you are way off that road. And I think it's important to be clear here that again, if we can't imagine, if we can imagine the end of the world before we can imagine the end of capitalism and money, that's a real problem for the left imaginary. And right now we actually have a green new deal. We have a proposal to transform our whole production system and put care work and environmentally sustainable work at the center of everything. And if someone goes, nah, 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 what about my Amazon gift card? I think that's the wrong focus <laughs> right now. And, you know, I, again, I, I actually think a lot of these leftists are well-intentioned, so I'm not trying to criticize them and their intentions as people, but I think that there is a, there is a tendency to downplay the malevolency of that profit motive and its ability to seep into and corrupt even the most noble leftist proposals. And I don't call myself a market socialist for that reason, um, because I, I don't think that we can tame the profit motive in the pursuit of socialism. Well, um, that's uh, we've, we've gone a bit over time here, uh, so <laughs> we should probably leave it at that. That's a lot to chew on, though, for sure. And I think, you know, maybe that's good Maybe stuff, my friend. Thank you. Yeah, uh, appreciate the chat. It's fun. Hash fun, out, yeah. you know, the ideal future. Yeah, I feel like there's there's more there's more to talk about. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We really appreciate you you coming on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for the debate. It's always good. Yeah. Um, yeah, Rohan Gray, the uh the book is called Digitizing the Dollar, coming out, you know, book bookstores or you know, uh uh sub subterranean. <laughs> Don't go to bookstores, yeah, stay bars, inside. Bars what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Even, even if you order from online, get your gloves, Amazon. wash your yeah, hands. Amazon, yeah, Pub- public libraries <laughs> as well. <laughs> but better yet, is it on? Is it an ebook? Will it, it, it will be an ebook. ebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we'll also link Ryan. We'll link to the the law review article that you that you mentioned as well. Thank you. Uh, just remember to maybe the nation, maybe the nation that. piece and, as well uh, if you're comfortable. Yeah. Thanks. Great. Great. Cheers. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care.